Hello everybody and welcome back to our comfy series on reading the Church Fathers. Last week we finished up with the Epistle of St. Clement of Rome, getting a more pastoral view as to how these men preached, what their main concerns were, and how they cared for the church by putting as much of the word of God as they could into their epistles. But tonight we begin to scratch the surface of a mystery with the epistle of Mathetes to Diognetus. Now we call this a mystery because the name Mathetes is not the name of the individual that wrote this epistle. The word Mathetes in the Greek means disciple or student. In fact, our word Matthew comes from that Greek word. Uh, Matthew, being originally named Levi, the tax collector, was renamed at some point to simply the disciple, and he did not want to be referred to as Levi anymore. But this is most likely not Matthew himself writing to Diognetus. Some people have theorized that the name of the individual is Quadratus. Supposedly, church tradition holds it, that Quadratus is one of the 72 that Christ sends out. At one point, Christ sends out the 12 apostles to go preach the kingdom, send them to heal people, to cast out demons. At another time, he sends out 72, and the Eastern Orthodox Church holds that they believe Quadratus to be one of those individuals, according to the history of St. Eusebius. Yet another individual candidate for the authorship of this is Hippolytus of Rome, commonly theorized to be one of, the, one of the popes in the early or late 2nd century, the Hippolytus corpus of literature, where he does comment on the text of scripture, is considered very important for how the textual tradition and interpretation was developed in the church. But this document, Mathetes' epistle to Diognetus, is considered to be too early to be Hippolytus by some. So there is still debate, but the only thing we do know is that this is properly part of the Apostolic Fathers' corpus of literature, meaning it is a 1st or 2nd century document that gives us an accurate look at how Christians thought back then, the kind of discussions that they were having. And since this document is a work of apologetics, it gives us a window into how they interacted with non-believers, the pagans that surrounded them in Rome and elsewhere. With that said, let us go ahead and start reading, starting in chapter 1, entitled, Occasion of the Epistle. Since I see thee, most excellent Diognetus, exceedingly desirous to learn the mode of worshipping God prevalent among the Christians, and inquiring very carefully and earnestly concerning them what God they trust in and what form of religion they observe, so as all to look down upon the world itself and despise death, 
while they neither esteem those to be gods that are reckoned such by the Greeks, nor hold to the superstition of the Jews, and what is the affection which they cherish among themselves, and why, in fine, this new kind of practice of piety has only now entered into the world, and not long ago. I cordially welcome this thy desire, and I implore God who enables us both to speak and to hear, to grant to me, so to speak, that, above all, I may hear you have been edified, and to you so to hear, that I who speak may have no cause of regret for having done so. So we learn from this first chapter that Diognetus is an individual with higher social status. He may be some sort of noble. Supposedly, there is a tutor to Marcus Aurelius bearing the name Diognetus, but there are a few other candidates in Alexandria from established families. Also, we understand from this first chapter the kind of questions that pagans were asking about the Christians. Why don't you hold to Greek pagan gods like the Jews don't hold to the Greek pagan gods? But at the same time, you don't act like nor sound like nor worship like Jews do. So what's, what's with this? And why did this new religion pop up seemingly out of nowhere so recently? Thankfully, Mathetes, as we'll call him for now, tries to give some answers that reflect what Christians were thinking at the time, and it's one question after another that he's answering. Chapter 2, he moves to the vanity of idols. Come then, after you have freed yourself from all prejudices possessing your mind, and laid aside what you have been accustomed to as something apt to deceive you in being made as if from the beginning a new man, inasmuch as according to your own confession you are to be the hearer of a new system of doctrine, come and contemplate, not with your eyes only, but with your understanding the substance and the form of those whom ye declare and deem to be gods. Is not one of them a stone similar to that on which we tread? Is not a second brass in no way superior to those vessels which are constructed for our ordinary use? Is not a third wood, and that already rotten? Is not a fourth silver, which needs a man to watch it lest it be stolen? Is not a fifth iron consumed by rust? Is not a sixth earthenware in no degree more valuable than that which is formed for the humblest purposes? Are not all these of corruptible matter? Are they not fabricated by means of iron and fire? Did not the sculptor fashion one of them, the brazier a second, the silversmith a third, and the potter a fourth? Was not every one of them, before they were formed by the arts of these workmen into the shape of these gods, each in its own way, subject to change? Would not those things which are now vessels, formed of the same materials, become like to such if they met with the same artificers? Might not these which are now worshipped by you again be made by men vessels similar to others? Are they not all deaf? Are they not blind? Are they not without life? Are they not destitute of feeling? 
Are they not incapable of motion? Are they not all liable to rot? Are they not all corruptible? These things ye call gods, these ye serve, these ye worship, and ye become altogether like to them. For this reason ye hate the Christians, because they do not deem these to be gods. But do not ye yourselves, who now think and suppose such to be gods, much more cast contempt upon them than they, the Christians, do? Do ye not much more mock and insult them when ye worship those that are made of stone and earthenware, without appointing any persons to guard them? But those made of silver and gold ye shut up by night, and appoint watchers to look after them by day, lest they be stolen. And by those gifts which ye mean to present to them, do ye not, if they are possessed of sense, rather punish than honor them? But if on the other hand they are destitute of sense, ye convict them of this fact, while ye worship them with blood and the smoke of sacrifices. Let any one of you such suffer such indignities. Let any one of you endure to have such things done to himself. But not a single human being will unless compelled to it, endure such treatment since he is endowed with sense and reason. A stone, however, readily bears it, seeing it is insensible. Certainly you do not show by your conduct that he, your God, is possessed of sense. And as to the fact that Christians are not accustomed to serve such gods, I might easily find many other things to say. But if even what has been said does not deem to anyone sufficient, I deem it idle to say anything further. It sounds a little bit like our author here comes out swinging against idols and idolatry. But before we compare him to Old Testament writers like Isaiah, Clearly, he is familiar with Isaiah, who rails against idolatry with this same idea. Mathetes does throw a bone to the Roman theology concerning idols at this time. You see, Isaiah writes against people that had fallen so deeply into spiritual destitution that they actually worshipped objects as gods. For the Romans and for other pagans, they would see a statue or an idol as a conduit to the gods. If it is shaped like the god, if it is honored like the god, then somebody honors the god through the idol itself, kind of like some sort of divine cell phone or carrier service for the sacrifices they would make. But to this, Mathetes says it is beside the point. When he says here, By those gifts which ye mean to present to them, do ye not, if they are possessed of sense, rather punish than honor them? If, on the other hand, they are destitute of sense, ye convict them of this fact while ye worship them with blood and the smoke of sacrifices. He's not denying the conduit theory of idolatry, but he's pointing out your gods, even if they're not the actual object, you're not actually worshipping a thing made of stone or wood or metal, that can't receive your physical sacrifices, can it? And if it can, but it's unable to, you're mocking your gods. If it can't, 
you're convicting them of not really being capable of doing divine things. So don't tell me you truly believe in these gods when you're concerned about Christians not believing in these gods. But he continues to chapter 3 to differentiate Christians from the Jews. Chapter 3, Superstitions of the Jews. And next, I imagine that you are most desirous of hearing something on this point, that the Christians do not observe the same forms of divine worship as do the Jews. The Jews, then, if they abstain from the kind of service above described and deem it proper to worship one God as being Lord of all, are right. But if they offer him worship in the way which we have described, they greatly err. For while the Gentiles, by offering such things to those that are destitute of sense and hearing, furnish an example of madness, they, on the other hand, by thinking to offer these things to God as if he needed them, might justify, must might justly reckon it rather an act of folly than divine worship. For he that made heaven and earth, and all that is therein, and gives to us all the things of which we stand in need, certainly requires none of those things which he himself bestows on such as think of furnishing them to him. But those who imagine that by means of blood and the smoke of sacrifices and burnt offerings they offer sacrifices acceptable to him, and that by such honors they show him respect, these, by supposing that they can give anything to him who stands in need of nothing, appear to me in no respect to differ from those who studiously confer the same honor on things destitute of sense, and which therefore are unable to enjoy such honors. So what is he saying here? Given that this is before the Talmud was really fully completed, so Judaism at least was still connected to the Old Testament religion. There are still burnt offerings and sacrifices being made. He says, well, at this point in time, there's no need of that, and there never really has been any. The God of the universe does not require these sacrifices as though he was hungry or required honor by death. One might think that this means that Mathetes is ignorant of the Old Testament. But that's not necessarily the case, though there is Old Testament sacrifice, and St. Clement of Rome, as we read previously, is very intimately knowledgeable about the Old Testament. This is more speaking about a differentiation from now. How are they worshiping God now that he has revealed himself in the person of Christ Jesus. So he continues on in the fourth chapter, the other observances of the Jews. But as to their scrupulosity concerning meats and their superstition as respects the Sabbaths and their boasting about circumcision and their fancies about fasting and the new moons, which are utterly ridiculous and unworthy of notice, I do not think that you require to learn anything from me. For to accept some of those things which have been formed by God for the use of men as properly formed, and to reject others as useless and redundant, how can this be lawful? 
and to speak falsely of God as if he forbade us to do what is good on the Sabbath days, how is not this impious? And to glory in the circumcision of the flesh as a proof of election, and as if on account of it they were specially loved by God, how is it not a subject of ridicule? And as to their observing months and days as if waiting upon the stars and the moon, and their distributing according to their own tendencies the appointments of God and the vicissitudes of the seasons, some for festivities and others for mourning, who would deem this a part of divine worship, and not much rather a manifestation of folly? I suppose, then, you are sufficiently convinced that the Christians properly abstain from the vanity and error common to both Jews and Gentiles, and from the busybody spirit and vain boasting of the Jews. But you must not hope to learn the mystery of their peculiar mode of worshipping God from any mortal. Note here that during this time there was still a very large issue with the Judaizing heresy and the stark, sharp language that Mathetes reserves for those still practicing the Mosaic law is not relegated to only those who rejected Christ. There very well may be some who claimed that they were believing in Christ, but still insisted on circumcision, which he says here is, well, a subject of ridicule. That's not how we worship now. Note that this does mean, at least as far as anybody might ask me, that the document known as the Didache is guilty of many of the things that Mathetes rejects here. He condemns their use of the Sabbath, their boasting about circumcision, their fancies about fasting in the new moons, which are utterly ridiculous and unworthy of notice. In this series, when we get to the Didache, we will notice that the authors of it are very concerned about fasting and obliquely refer to circumcision as being quote-unquote perfect. Uh, dietary issues and abstaining from certain foods is also mentioned in the Didache as being very important, leading me to consider that particular document to be something of a Judaizing or diet Judaizing character. After all, Mathetes goes as hard against it as St. Paul, having written the book of Galatians, would have. Continuing on in chapter 5, it says, The manners of the Christians. For the Christians are distinguished from other men, neither by country nor language nor the customs which they observe. For they neither inhabit cities of their own, nor employ a peculiar form of speech, nor lead a life which is marked out by any singularity. The course of conduct which they follow has not been devised by any speculation or deliberation of inquisitive men, nor do they, like some, proclaim themselves the advocates of any merely human doctrines. But inhabiting Greek as well as barbarian cities, according as the lot of each of them has determined, 
and following the customs of the natives in respect to clothing, food, and the rest of their ordinary conduct, they display to us their wonderful and confessedly striking method of life. They dwell in their own countries, but simply as sojourners. As citizens, they share in all things with others, and yet endure all things as if foreigners. Every foreign land is to them as their native country, and every land of their birth as a land of strangers. They marry, as do all others. They beget children, but they do not destroy their offspring. Uh, literally in the Greek, that's cast away fetuses. They have a common table, but not a common bed. They are in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws and at the same time surpass the laws by their lives. They love all men and are persecuted by all. They are unknown and condemned. They are put to death and restored to life. They are poor, yet make many rich. They are in lack of all things and yet abound in all. They are dishonored and yet in their very dishonor are glorified. They are evil spoken of, and yet are justified. They are reviled and blessed. They are insulted and repay the insult with honor. They do good, yet are punished as evildoers. When punished, they rejoice as if quickened into life. They are assailed by the Jews as foreigners and are persecuted by the Greeks. Yet those who hate them are unable to assign any reason for their hatred. Note here that Diognetus's the things he receives in this answer seem to come straight out of the Beatitudes, straight out of St. James, when James says that our tongues should not be used for cursing, but rather for blessing. There is the already but not yet aspect to the Christian being brought to the forefront, saying, yes, I am a citizen and a human being just like you. I eat, I get married, I have children, the whole thing. But I'm not quite home because I belong with my Lord in heaven and one day will be with him. Chapter 6, The Relation of Christians to the World To sum up all in one word, what the soul is in the body that are Christians in the world, the soul is dispersed through all the members of the body, and Christians are scattered through all the cities of the world. The soul dwells in the body, yet is not of the body, and Christians dwell in the world, yet are not of the world. The invisible soul is guarded by the visible body, and Christians are known indeed to be in the world, but their godliness remains invisible. The flesh hates the soul and wars against it, though itself suffering no injury because it is prevented from enjoying pleasures. The world also hates the Christians, though in no wise injured, because they abjure pleasures. The soul loves the flesh that hates it, and loves also the members. Christians likewise love those that hate them. The soul is imprisoned in the body, yet preserves that very body. And Christians are confined in the world as in a prison, 
and yet they are the preservers of the world. The immortal soul dwells in a mortal tabernacle, and Christians dwell as sojourners in corruptible bodies looking for an incorruptible dwelling in the heavens. The soul, when but ill provided with food and drink, becomes better. In like manner, the Christians, though subjected day by day to punishment, increase the more in number. God has assigned them this illustrious position, which it would be unlawful for them to forsake. Now, here there is some confusion. It almost sounds like Mathetes is Gnostic in his tone, setting up a dualism between spirit and matter and emphasizing the spirit as superior to matter, claiming even a common soul between all Christians and a common citizenship in heaven rather than the world. There are many who might read these things and wonder whether all Christians at this time were, well, monkish and slowly starving themselves. But note here that the dichotomies which Mathetes is bringing up suggest a familiarity to St. John's writings in the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John speaks of a world that hates us. Mathetes capitalizes on that. St. John speaks of how we must not love the flesh, which St. Paul will speak of later, not in terms of its function, we don't hate that we eat and drink, but rather the indwelling sin within us. And we come here to an issue with some of the apostolic fathers. They were very careful to not mess with their writings, to not mess with the New Testament or what they had been taught. Oftentimes it sounds like they are attempting to regurgitate things they received from their teachers, the apostles. Other times they are providing direct quotes. But without actual interpretation and without commentary, their mixture of words without a solid foundation in the scriptures first, may lead some to error. And indeed, that happened as the Gnostic heresy gained traction among Gentile Christians who would read things like Mathete saying that Christians are prisoners in the world. The soul is imprisoned in the flesh. And they would say, ah, oh, this means I must abscond with the flesh and embrace the spirit through fastings and achieving gnosis, when there's only a very slight chance that Mathetes meant anything of the sort. Let us read one more section here in chapter 7 on the manifestation of Christ. For as I said, this was no merely earthly invention which was delivered to them, nor is it a mere human system of opinion which they judge it right to preserve so carefully. Nor has a dispensation of mere human mysteries been committed to them, but truly God himself, who is almighty, the creator of all things and invisible, has sent from heaven and placed among men him who is the truth, 
and the holy and incomprehensible word, or logos, and has firmly established him in their hearts. Note here that there is careful wording here to distinguish Christianity from some philosophy like Seneca's Stoicism or Plato's way of living in the academy. Matetes wants his readers to know this is not a philosophy because it is not passed down by men but by God. Continuing on, he did not, as one might have imagined, send to men any servant or angel or ruler or any one of those who bear sway over earthly things or one of those to whom the government of things in the heavens has been entrusted, but the very creator and fashioner of all things, by whom he made the heavens, by whom he enclosed the sea within its proper bounds, whose ordinances all the stars faithfully observe, from whom the sun has received the measure of his daily course to be observed, whom the moon obeys, being commanded to shine in the night, and whom the stars also obey, following the moon in her course, by whom all things have been arranged and placed within their proper limits, and to whom all are subject, the heavens and the things that are therein, the earth and the things that are therein, the sea and the things that are therein, fire, air, and abyss, the things which are in the heights, the things which are in the depths, and the things which lie between. This messenger he sent to them. Was it then, as one might conceive, for the purpose of exercising tyranny, or of inspiring fear and terror? By no means, but under the influence of clemency and meekness. As a king sends his son, who was also a king, so sent he him, as God he sent him, as to men he sent him, as a savior he sent him, and as seeking to persuade, not to compel us, for violence has no place in the character of God, as calling us he sent him, not as vengefully pursuing us, as loving us he sent him, not as judging us, for he will yet send him to judge us, and who shall endure his appearing? Do you not see them exposed to wild beasts, that they may be persuaded to deny the Lord and yet not overcome? Do you not see that the more of them are punished, the greater becomes the number of the rest? This does not seem to be the work of man. This is the power of God. These are the evidences of his manifestation. So note here an early recognition of the divinity of Christ. There is no other way to describe Jesus the Logos, the second person of the Trinity, in the ways that Matthetes describes him unless he is divine, to the point where it is direct. As a king sends his son who was also a king, so sent he him. What does Matthetes mean by that? As God he sent him, as to men he sent him. This Jesus Christ is divine, and yet also is sent to men and as to men. So, of course, taking on a human nature, even though he is properly the ruler of all the universe, being divine himself. 
The wording is still careful to distinguish between that and, say, the philosophy of Plato and Socrates with the Timaeus, which posits some uh, semi-debased uh, demiurge figure that merely arranges matter and lets it go off to do its thing. To the contrary, Jesus Christ is presented here as God and as the ruler of the universe come down to save men. But not through compulsion or tyranny, as the writer says. He is not a big believer in unconditional election or a spontaneous regeneration preceding faith. To the contrary, he says that Christ came down to earth to persuade, to speak to. Our Reformed friends and our Calvinist friends, if they seek a basis in the Apostolic Fathers, are going to have to contend with Mathetes' words here. They do have some things in common in their soteriology regarding election in the person of St. Clement of Rome. But Mathetes wants to emphasize men freely following the God who reaches out. Was this a sign of a division in soteriology this early in the church? Perhaps, although we should not be surprised by that. After all, it is during this time that the Judaizers are doing their thing, and here Mathetes is standing against them just as he does the rest of, well, observant Jews. And during also this time, there's a threat to make Christianity into just another philosophy, as the Gnostics would have had it. And also, the thought of it being a mystery religion, he casts off the idea of this being another human mystery. So Mathetes comes out in these few chapters that we've read as swinging, <laughs> almost polemically, against all other faiths, saying this is the real deal. This comes from God, and we rejoice in it. Now, graciously, the epistle to Diognetus is much shorter than St. Clement's epistle, but we will have to finish it next week as we get into him answering some of the tougher questions that a Roman pagan may have asked. We will go into those in detail next week. Until then, our Lord bless you and keep you. Amen. Amen. Oh,